Ephesians chapter 3, we are finishing, getting really close to finishing another chapter. 14 through 19 is the text we have for today. So if you'd look in your Bible at chapter 3. If you were to Google search the greatest attribute of God, you would have reams of people responding to what is the greatest attribute of God. Theologians pontificate on the greatest part of God. And most of the sources that I would consider reliable all kind of conclude there's one, and, and I kind of agree with them. The holiness of God is, is really a big deal. But, I'm saying this loosely, I find it really mind-blowing to consider anything about God. I mean, it's hard for me to kind of put parts of him up there and go, well, that, well that's everything and everything else is not as good. I'll, I'll give you a challenge today, I swear. Go home and just contemplate the mercy of God. Think of nothing else but his mercy in your life. My, my guess is after you spent a long time considering it, you might leave that afternoon going, it's gotta be his mercy. His mercy must be the best thing about him because it's overwhelming. Like everything about God is overwhelming. It's just too, too much to comprehend. But... Because God is so otherly, he is so hard to comprehend, he has decided to reveal himself to us in the person of Jesus and through the words of the apostles. But as we discover him in the words and the life of Jesus and as we hear of him in the words of the apostles, I can't help but notice how he relates to us and that he's decided that all of his attributes would be seen most clearly and maybe most precisely through one particular attribute, and it's the attribute of love. Is the holiness of God the greatest? Probably. But I know this, I'm certainly glad I can look at it through love. Because if all he was was holy, I'm, I don't have much to hope for. But because he's love, guess what happens? He diverts, he diverts the wrath for my sin towards his son, I experience holiness through his love. Do you understand? Like all other attributes are seen most precisely, at least as far as his children are concerned, through his love. And I guess that's the essence of what I want to talk about today, or at least what I think Paul's little prayer here is all about. It is Paul praying for the church in Ephesus, but he's praying for us. In God's wisdom, 2,000 years in the future, here we sit hearing these words that he's praying for God's people. So get it, church. This is where he's taken us. He wants us to know this wonderful truth, the power of God, the love of God, and the fullness of God in our lives. All of them that Paul says surpasses, get this, your knowledge. That's what he prays, that we would understand all these things. So I had a question when I started sitting down to read this. How do I describe the incomprehensible? How do I tell you about this love that surpasses your mind, your knowledge? If, as Paul is about to tell us, the love of God does surpass that knowledge, what am I supposed to do today? And I, I try to make it as simple because I'm a simple guy. All I can do is try. All I can try with all that I know is to describe God's love knowing right before I start, that it's even bigger than I can tell you. It's greater than words can contain. There is not an illustration that wraps it up. Whatever I say, whatever anyone says about the love of God, just add a whole bunch of sidecar to it. It just spills over the edges. You can't contain it. When my uh, boys were young, my, my sons are 28, 26, 24, 22. All right, so this is a long, long time ago. But I used to look at him and say, you know how much dad loves you? 
Do you know? And they did probably what your kids do. If you ask them a question, they go, right? They try to measure it. I said, no, buddy. My love goes from one hand around the universe and back to the other. And I would say infinity. So we would say that to each other. Infinity, man. And it wasn't like I was trying to give it a limit either. I was trying to describe the indescribable. I just love you, man. I haven't found the end of it yet, but I doubt I will. And that, in essence, is what Paul is doing here for us today. He wants us to know about God's love. So let me, before we get into the text, let me ask you some questions. Do you know how much God loves you? See, some people hear that question and they immediately go to fear because the answer they have is not right. I'm certain we all need to hear about the love of God and I'm certain some of us need to hear it more than others. I don't know if this is right, but my gut tells me that the greatest attack the people of God suffer under is the all-out assault of really knowing that we're loved by God. There's no way, there's no way his love could deal with me. There's no way what I'm going through would be anything I would describe as love. I have been reading recently and learning recently about the darkness and depression and discouragement that affects so many people in our world and, and in history, by the way. I mean, you might be able to blame the culture and say, well, we're so messed up now that it's clear why people are so discouraged. But if you go back in history in the church, you will find people that walk in darkness. People, by the way, that you and I would see as godly people mature people, people who are knowledgeable about the scriptures, people who, by their own expression, fight doubts and discouragement and have questions they can't answer, people who suffer and wonder, where's God in this suffering? Where are you? You said you will do if I ask, and I'm asking, I'm asking, I'm asking, and nothing changes. So what are you doing with me? Like, am I outside of your love? People who are so overwhelmed with their sin and struggle, they just conclude there's just no way. There's no way God's grace and love could get that. And so they're oppressed with anxious hearts and anxious minds. And I have to confess, I don't live in this world much. I'm kind of a skip off the surface guy. And I say that to my detriment. But at 57, do you, do you know what I deal with more now than ever? Moments where it looks too heavy for me. I don't want to hear another story. I don't want to watch the news. I don't want to ask questions and struggle with less than clear answers. And so here's how I've concluded even this short journey of trying to study stuff that doesn't come natural to me. My heart's really broken, really broken. Some of the people closest to me struggle with darkness. And it crushes me. I wish I had like something, you know, Make it go away. And I'll tell you another thing that I struggle with. I don't think the church, and I even am accusing myself of this, have done a good job of dealing with people who have depression or discouragement or darkness or wonders or whatever, because the church has notoriously thought it's just more information. Give these people more answers, and then they won't, you know, it's kind of like, it's a knowledge issue. But here's the truth. Godly, wise, and informed Christians struggle sometimes to believe the depths of God's love. 
Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, never had a sunshiny day that I could find. Isaac Newton, Martin Luther, Job, King David, Elijah, you, I could bury you with heroes, heroes of the faith who fought for joy. It's so common and Paul knows it is too. So just look at me for a second, okay? Do you struggle with fear? Doubts? Everything's good and then suddenly a question you can't answer and then it goes down a bunny trail of darkness. Anxious hearts, do you have that? I confess in humility, I don't know the source of all that. I wish I did, but I don't. It may be a combination of body, mind, or soul. It could be something you're not well, or it could be that, that your soul is under attack. It could be all of the above. So I, I'm not smart enough for those things, but I do know that all I can do is ask for God to do the very thing that Paul is asking God to do in, it, in this book. All I've got. If someone came to me and said, I'm hurting, I, I feel fear, I feel doubt, I would open this book up and I would open to chapter three and I would read this prayer from Paul to the church. That's all I got. That God would somehow show you the unknowable. The thing that surpasses more information. The thing that moves the longest distance in the human world, the distance from your heart, from your head to your heart. You would know beyond what you know, that you'd feel and sense the love of God in a deep and profound way. That which surpasses knowledge, which to me implies some pretty powerful stuff, that God wants his eternal, secure, steadfast love to overflow our minds and leak all the way into our affections. That's what I know. If it's gonna surpass just facts and figures and it gets all the way into my heart, guess what happens? Then my emotions and my feelings are affected. And that's where power lies. Power to answer doubts when they scream at you and questions when they question you. Power to root out sin because what you have in your affections is a greater affection for the sin that you once chased after. And suddenly by comparison you go, this is better. And without much effort whatsoever, you leave that thing that had its grips on you because you've gone after your greatest affection. If it moves from here to here, we've got a shot. Power to find joy. That's what I believe Paul's praying for. So it's not a very long or a very complicated paragraph, but it is profound. And I've been praying it for us for a long time. We would know, we would know this love that surpasses our knowledge. So let's read it and let's ask for the Holy Spirit to help us understand it this morning. Verse 14, chapter 3. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Pray with me. God, would you help us this morning 
actually receive what it is that Paul is praying for us, that we might know that which is surpassing knowledge, that we might understand according to the riches of your glory, your strength in our inner man, that we might comprehend this unmeasurable affections you have for us. God, some of us need to hear that more than others. Either way, God, scream it at us this morning. Don't let me say anything that isn't accurate and leave us encouraged, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe you saw this already if, you're, if you remember where we've been, but chapter three, verse one, started where chapter 14 picks up. I think this is kind of like one of those wandering prayers for Paul because I think he's trying to start to pray in chapter, chapter three, verse one. For this reason, I, Paul, and he's about ready to do it and then there's this hyphen and off he goes. His mind wanders into all the subject matter he's just been talking about in chapter two. That's why he comes back in verse 14 and repeats himself. For this reason, now I'll get to my prayer, which sort of gives me a little hope in my prayer life because I, I get distracted all the time when I start praying. I, would, I wish my prayers would be hovering on the things that the Word of God says, but I'll be praying and it'll dart off. And that's sort of what happens here in this little first section of chapter 3. Nevertheless, Paul brings it back to a prayer for the church. And it says here, he bows his knees before the Father. That's, that's a bigger deal than it just reads. Most commentators would suggest that the Hebrew men didn't, didn't kneel to pray normally. They would stand. The culture was to stand and pray unless unless um, there was a serious moment of great emotion and intensity. So now you have to ask yourself the question, what would make Paul be that moved to hit his knees to pray for us? What would do that? Well, I think it's obvious. I know, even though we've taken months to go through these first three chapters, this came out in kind of one strong flow from Paul's heart to the church, and he's overwhelmed with what he said. He's moved, deeply moved, and he hits his knees to thank God and ask God to do wonderful works for the church. Paul's caught up in all of this. That's why he kneels. Let me, let me just give you a quick flyover of the amazing things that God has provided for us, and then you'll know why Paul hits his knees here and prays in intensity. We've learned this in, in the three chapters, that we... God's people are chosen in him. We are predestined in love, that we're redeemed by his blood, that we're lavished with grace, that we're united with God. We have a heavenly inheritance. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit. His power is working in us. Dead people are now made God's people, saved by grace through faith, once far off, now have been brought near. This giant wall of hostility that exists between man and God and man and man has been tore down by Christ. And we've been made fellow citizens with all the saints. And he's formed one new man out of two, the Jew and the Gentile. Made us one. No more insiders, no more outsiders, just one in Christ. All parts of the same body. That's three chapters of I can't believe it's true. You understand why Paul hits his knees overwhelmed with God. God, I pray. I pray for this reason I pray for the church, that church, the church that all those things are true for all the things you died for, God, would you let them know what surpasses knowledge? Let it travel to their hearts. Let it affect their affections. Let it move them deeply. Paul's prayer is pretty simple. As he prays for this brand new third race to the father of all, he breaks it down in three specific things. 
First of all, he prays for our strength. Look at verses 16 and 17 again. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. It's interesting, at least it is to me, that as Paul writes from prison, chained between two guards, and as surely as the fear of being treated like that lingers in the minds of his readers, of all the things Paul decides to pray for, he doesn't pray that they would escape trouble. He prays that they would have strength, which tells me how bad of a prayer I am, because I would always pray, take away the trouble. Paul prays for strength. And where does our strength come from? Here's what he says, verse 16, his rich supply according to the riches of his glory. We talked about this idea in week two, I think week two of our study in Ephesians, this, this phrase, according to. In fact, in chapter one, verse seven, Paul used it this way, that we have forgiveness according to the riches of grace. And I told you then that this is not just some kind of throwaway statement. This is, this is huge for, for us. According to is so, so much bigger than out of his grace or out of his, his goodness to us or his glory. In other words, God isn't a rich but miserly God who's hoarding his supply from his children. According to means this. It means that when God gives, he gives gifts that match the size of his wealth. You know it's a king-sized gift. It matches what he has. Paul isn't praying to a God who means really well, but just doesn't have the resources or the heart to pull it off. He prays that we would be strengthened by his riches, right? God's supply for us. And he tells us two things, specifically how we're strengthened. One is by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, and the second thing is by Christ dwelling in our hearts. Let's deal with the first one, the, the, the Spirit of God in us, the power of the Spirit. Scripture tells us, we don't have time to go into it, that when we are converted, because we are converted and how we're converted is by the work of the Spirit who lives in us. The Spirit of God lives, dwells in the hearts of believers. In fact, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul himself said we were sealed by the Holy Spirit into a guarantee of our inheritance. That's what the text tells us. So what's Paul praying here? What is this power? Well, Paul is just talking about the work of the Spirit to strengthen our understanding and to strengthen our will, our conscience, our minds. Holy Spirit, do whatever you have to do. Do the amazing, powerful work in us to prepare us for all these circumstances. I have no idea what's coming my way. Just get me ready. Give me the right mind and the right heart. Give me the right courage. Give me the right everything, Holy Spirit, to deal with the world, deal with my circumstances, and deal with my life, no matter what it is. So, do you need joy this morning to overcome and drive out pain and sorrow? Where do you go? Who provides? Do you need peace because there's all sorts of trouble? Do you need love because there's all sorts of hate? Here's what, here's what Paul is saying. Lord, do something in them through the power of the Holy Spirit do it in them. Provide from your rich storehouse all that they need through the Holy Spirit. 
Next thing that Paul says might sound confusing at first. Paul prays that we would be strengthened by Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith. And so the question is, why pray that? Why pray for Christ to dwell in our hearts if we already have Christ in our hearts when we first believe? That's what we confess. Why pray that? Well, you have to understand the word dwell here to understand what Paul is asking. There are two uses of the word. One use of the word is dwelling near. It's the idea of temporary residence. It's the idea of a stranger, close but not in. Make sense? The second use of the word is, is permanent residence. Paul is praying that the Holy Spirit would do such an amazing work that Jesus, get this, would be at home in our hearts. Dwell in our hearts. Change us so much, transform us so much, make us such a new man that he's not confused at all what he finds in here. So what do you think? Is he at home in there? If Jesus walked into your heart, there's a picture. Does he find a heart that's so night like him he wouldn't hang? Like, wait a minute, man, I don't even like the art in this place. I don't enjoy what it thinks about. I don't enjoy what it loves. I don't enjoy what it hoards. This isn't at all like me. This isn't a place for me. Paul prays for the church that Jesus would dwell, find a home in the hearts of God's people. Let's move on. After praying for our strength, Paul now prays that we would know the love of Christ. Look at verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love you, you notice that Paul mixes metaphors here. He uses the words rooted and grounded. Rooted is an agricultural illustration. Grounded is an architectural one. Root, rooted pictures roots of love going deep down and wide. Kind of like trees trying to find water in Arizona. Deep and wide. Let them be rooted. Grounded pictures a secure, immovable footing. When I used to work in construction back in Chicago, we, we poured a lot of concrete. And because of the frost, we poured it deep. Because the point of the building was to stay sure. That's the idea. That's the picture of the words that Paul uses. Let it be broad. Let it go deep. Let it be solid. And let it be secure is what he prays for. That this strength would be like that. And so what Paul's mind is on here is that this love that we are supposed to have for others is absolutely essential to the outcome of this one new man that Paul has been talking about for the last chapter. The, the dividing wall of hostilities come down. There is no more Jew and Gentile. You want to know the lubrication to make that work? It's got to be love. There's no way possible without love that that can happen. How else could people from different backgrounds or colors or cultures or creeds possibly have a chance to be what God has established without love? How can it happen? And Paul prays for that. Love is the fulfillment of the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first and greatest commandment. The second's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no way to obey the first without obeying the second. And I would tell you that, that love is the thread of the fruit of the Spirit, the singular fruit of the Spirit, the evidences of God living in your heart, Christian. So if you're a Christian, you want to see the fruit of your life, look at Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Those are the descriptions, the singular descriptions of a Christian's life. And love 
is the driving force for all of it. And all of it has to do with how you treat other people. One writer that I read this week said love is listed first because it's the foundational expression of God's touch in our life. And this is how he defines it. Tell me this isn't cool. Love is the key. Joy in the list of the fruit of the spirit. Joy is love singing. Peace is love resting. Long-suffering is love enduring. Kindness is love's touch. Goodness is love's character. Faithfulness is love's habit. Gentleness is love's self-forgetfulness. Self-control is love holding the reins. I love that. So Paul prays. He prays for this love for others to be rooted and grounded in our life. And with his mind still on the subject of love, he turns from this horizontal way that this one new man is going to be able to flesh it all out, and he points it north and just goes totally vertical on this idea of love. And he prays that we'd be able to comprehend the expanse of God's love for us. Look at verses 18 and beginning of 19. We may have Strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Uh, we just have to admit it, that sounds ridiculous, at least it does to me. And if I paraphrase it, you tell me how you'd answer it. Um, Paul prays that we might know the unknowable. Strange sounding? Like how would I know the unknowable? Let, let me give you a couple thoughts to consider as we look at this. Um, yeah, it's true, you're never gonna fully know the love of God. If I could somehow have the greatest mind and the most information ever, it would be still a thimble full of God's love. But even though we can't fully know the love of God, listen, you can truly know the love of God. You can know it. Just because you can't grasp it all, you can truly Know it. God's love is eternal. It's perfect. It's holy. It's faithful. It's sacrificial. It's consistent. It's overflowing and it's overwhelming. I understand that. It's impossible to grasp the, the size and dimension of God's love for you. I, I read this in, in one of the commentaries. I thought it was helpful to understanding just the inability, the incomprehensibility of understanding God's love. And it was a story, a true story of St. Augustine, who in his theological deep mind was trying to plumb the depths of God and what he was considering was the Trinity. One God, three persons. And his mind went, I can't do it. I can't comprehend the Trinity. And so he spent a season wandering around just saying to himself, one God, three persons. One God, three persons. And he was trying to understand it. And he would go on long walks as he pondered these things and he found himself at the beach and he's walking on the beach and as he's walking, he's saying these things in his mind. He sees a kid, a little kid playing in the sand. And there's a, like a, a pool on the beach. And the kid's running to the ocean with a seashell, running back to the pool, putting water in it. So he'd take water out of the ocean and fill the, the pool up. And Augustine said, what are you doing, boy? And he said, I'm, I'm trying to move the ocean. And of course, he did what you did. He laughed at him and said, you can't do that. And Augustine swears this is true. He, he identified at that moment that this boy was an angel. And the boy looked at him right out of that moment. And he made it pretty clear. He says, um, I will sooner empty this ocean into this pool than you will manage to get the Holy Spirit and the Son and the Father, the Holy Trinity, into your head. 
And the author that made this quote suggested for a second for us to try to comprehend the dimensions of God's love that the boy will empty the ocean and Augustine will contemplate the Trinity sooner than you and I will ever contemplate the love of God. It's big. It's massive. And those words are so puny for the love of God. You can't exhaust it, but you can know it's real, and you know it's real. Every time you take a breath, you know God is sustaining your life. Every time, every time you see a blessing that you enjoy, you know God is a giver of good gifts. Every time you confess, you know he's faithful to forgive and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Every time you know he's separated your sin from you as far as the east is from the west, you know he loves you. Every time you look at the cross, every time you see a scar in your life, it tells you that he's overcome you, and he loves you. And it was his great love that compelled him. His love is the tightest grip in the entire universe. I don't know how to describe it. He says it surpasses knowledge, I guess so. A lot of people have tried to unpack what Paul is thinking when he's referring to the love of God with the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. And I don't know what Paul was thinking. He doesn't tell us what he was thinking. The way I prefer to think of it, he was telling us, the church, the same thing I was telling my boys 20 years ago. How big is the love of God? Infinity. Height, length, breadth, width. If it, what do I have to tell you? It's bigger than I can even describe to you. I think that's Paul's point. One of the guys that I read this week took a run at it, trying to define it. I don't, it doesn't matter to me. I think it's poignant, though. He said the love of Christ is broad enough to encompass mankind, Jew and Gentile. The love of Christ is long enough to last for an eternity. It's deep enough to reach the worst sinner and high enough to exalt that sinner to heaven. And I suppose that's as good as any to define maybe what Paul was thinking. I, I think the simplicity of what Paul is saying is, I can't tell you. It's too wide. It's too deep. It's too far. It's too high. And we struggle because the attack comes after that. questions of the love of God. Verse 18, Paul prays that we would understand the love of God. Verse 19, he prays that we would know the love of God. In other words, Paul is praying that we would have an experience of the love of God. Something beyond my cognitive, linear mindset. And to be honest with you, I told you before, I think this is where we experience power. When you feel it, when you feel the love of God, it then affects your affections. And when what you love gets changed because you really grasp in your heart the affections of God, guess what it does to all the stuff ruining you and me? Kind of puts it in its light. That's a bad thing. I don't want that thing. I don't want to be that person. The power in this Christian life is seen in this new affection. The one that kind of moves the cognitive knowledge of the love of God down to how I feel about the knowledge of God. And herein lies the mystery. I can tell you what God's word says about the love of God, but the Holy Spirit has to move it. He has to move it down so that it sinks into who you are and affects your voice, your internal voice. So when it screams at you with doubts, when it screams at you with you, the loudest voice is his. Paul 
Paul's last request at the end of verse 19, that we be filled with the fullness, all the fullness of God. How is that possible? Talk about a prayer I don't know if it ever happened. I want you to have all of God in you. I'd blow apart if God was all in me. So what is he possibly saying here? Interesting, one writer said it this way. How can we be filled with an infinite thing? He starts with this idea of time, eternity. He says, you'll have an eternity to be constantly filled. I like that, that helps me. And then he goes on to say this, that Paul is praying that we'd be filled and filled and filled and filled and filled and so on forever as God out of his infinite resources increasingly pours himself out into those sinful but now redeemed creatures he has rescued to the work of Christ. The point, the full fullness of God in us is that God just keeps coming. He never stops. He fills you and you think you can't handle anymore and then he fills you and you tap and you say, I can't handle anymore and then he fills you. And sometimes it isn't just like a song. Sometimes it's brokenness, like repentance, but he fills you and he fills you and he fills you from now until eternity because he's shaping you into the images of Jesus, our Savior. Does that make sense? That's the prayer that Paul prays. To be honest with you, it makes my brain hurt to think about it all. And Paul is smarter than I'll ever be, ever. I met a man after the last service and he started talking and I knew I was in the wrong conversation right away. <laughs> Dude, he is so smart. Do you realize I work on cars? I don't, I can't help you. Paul's super smart. I suppose if I had any source to go to, to go, what does it mean? What does it say? I'd go to Paul. But to be honest with you, I think when it gets to the subject of God's massive love, I think he's done. I think he's tapping out. That's why he says, surpasses knowledge. And that's why he says, and we'll learn it next week in verse 20, now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than what you can ask or even think. He's gone past my mind, Paul says. What God is doing is blowing out my understandings because God's love is that great. Either way, church, listen, listen very carefully. Put down your pen. Don't write anymore. Just listen to me. You need to know this. God loves you. He really, really does. He loves you as much as an infinite God can love. He loves you for as long as an eternally faithful God can love. He loves you in spite of what you've done as much as a perfectly forgiving God can. He loves you how you are as much as a doting father could ever love his child. You're loved by God. And when the screaming voices or the discouragement or your own life starts to tell you something else, I'm going to pray what Paul prays. I don't know what else to do. That what surpasses your understanding would be your experience. That you would know the massive love of God for you. In fact, why don't we do this? Let's finish by praying Paul's prayer together. Just bow your heads with me as I paraphrase this for us. Father God, according, we pray, according to the riches of your glory, give us strength through the power of your spirit to our very soul. I pray that Christ would find a home in our hearts through faith, that he would be welcome there. 
I pray that we, your children, would be stable and strong and immovable in your love for us. I pray with your church and for your church that somehow, God, we might be able to really understand the massive size and scope of your love for us. That we'd understand that it's wide enough for all of our needs and long enough for all of our life and high enough to raise us to you and deep enough to wipe away all the shame. I pray, God, that that truth would capture our hearts and our affections. God, we pray that you would be all over us. Fill us and fill us and fill us forever, we pray. Amen.